Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 29-34 Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Father, uh, we love you. We trust you. And today's text is a challenging one. It's uh, perplexing. And so uh, we admit, Lord, we're not just reading um, hard literature right now. But this is your living word. You speak through it. You're revealing yourself to us. And we also acknowledge that your spirit helps us understand. And so I pray right now that you would help us understand your word, that you'd help, it, uh, help us apply it to our lives, and that you'd open our hearts to receive it and act upon it today. We trust you for these things. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, grab your Bibles. Make sure you're open to 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll be looking at that this morning. Well, according to journalist Tim Butters, in 2018, a Ukrainian villager discovered something alarming outside the capital of Kiev in Ukraine. In a dense forest, he stumbled upon, get this, 12 freshly dug graves. This really happened. 2018. Well, after alerting the authorities, the police swooped in and their investigation eventually led them to the culprit. But instead of identifying a mass murderer, instead they found a a therapist, actually. A therapist, a psychologist named Andre Zilvetro. I think that's how you say that, Zilvetro. And this therapist had a unique treatment plan for his patients. This really happened, 2018. He treats patients by allowing them to be buried alive in a coffin for two hours to thoughtfully contemplate their death and how they're living their life. It's really happened. Does anybody want to sign up for therapy with uh, Andre? Can't believe it. Yeah, it it freaked out the villagers and it turned out to be nothing but uh, counseling and therapy. You know, he's got a point. Can you imagine doing that? Can you imagine? I mean, actually laying down in a coffin underneath dirt, and they had an air tube and everything, for two hours in silence. Huh. There is something to that, isn't there? I mean, considering how you'll face death does help you consider how to face life, doesn't it? There's something about that. I mean, you've tasted this. You don't even realize it. You have totally tasted this. If you have ever attended a funeral, you've had the same coffin moment as these patients have had, haven't you? 
If you attend a funeral, you, you see death in front of you. And facing death helps us change the way we face life, doesn't it? It's strange, uh, but Paul himself, in this difficult, perplexing, and unique little paragraph of Scripture, he mentions death or dying five times in just a short little paragraph. In a way, Paul does the same method. He focuses on death in order to help us face life. That's what this little paragraph is all about. But it's strange. Um, Verse 29 is a strange verse. It's perplexing. It's almost as strange as those falling to the ground. (laughs) Or uh, it's almost as strange as a therapist burying his patients alive. It's just a weird thing. Makes you feel weird. Verse 29 makes me feel like that story that I read about Andre. Look at verse 29 with me. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? What does that mean? What does that mean? Verse 29, that's a weird verse, it's perplexing. What do you do when you read something in the Bible you don't understand? And I don't mean hypothetically, I mean actually consider what do you do? If you're really honest, what do you do when you read something that you don't understand in the Bible? If, if you're probably like most people, my guess, my hunch is that you read it, you go, huh, that's weird, and then you continue reading. <laughs> or if you tear your Achilles tendon, you have lots of hours to read lots of articles about what's going on here. Uh, I, I want us to trust God's word this morning. And I want us to slow down, even when we don't understand something, and say, okay, Father in heaven, I trust you. Help me understand this text. Let's slow down and use skills. Let's practice Bible interpretation this morning. So I'm preaching this morning, but I'm also doing a little bit of teaching, because I want us to not skip over hard verses of the Bible. And verse 29, literally, I found a series of articles by scholars who address some of the hardest verses in Scripture, and conveniently, 1 Corinthians 15, 29 was one of those verses. So I got the short straw this week uh, for, for preaching. This is a challenging text. Let's take a look. First rule, first rule, you get to a hard verse, Hard verse, what do you do? There's three rules in Bible interpretation. The first rule of Bible interpretation is context. The second rule of Bible interpretation is context. And the third rule of Bible interpretation is prayer. It is prayer. (laughs) You are gonna need to pray once you figure out the context. So that's what we've got going on here. Verse 29, what's happening? Remember, It would be so unfair, wouldn't it, for someone to take something you carefully wrote and then just helicopter into the middle of a letter that you wrote and just dissect a little tiny sentence out of everything you were trying to say and then tell you this is what you meant by what you were saying. That's so unfair. So let's not do that to anyone, and especially not Scripture or the Apostle Paul. So the first context in this is the historical context. We got got to remember, this was a real person, the Apostle Paul, who's writing a real letter to real people in a real city called Corinth in the first century. 
which means this is someone else's mail that we're opening and we're reading it. And if we want to be fair to the Apostle Paul, we better read it in its context. Paul was addressing a specific issue to a specific people in Corinth. And apparently, in verse 29, something strange is going on. The second piece of context we have to remember is its literary context. That's the helicoptering. There's no helicoptering. We need to read verse 29 next to verse 28 and also with verse 30 because he's using sentences and words in a linear fashion to develop an argument. It's not fair to take it out of context. So what is Paul saying in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians? Let's review the context briefly. Remember, Easter Sunday, when I was standing on two feet, (laughs) verses one through 11, Paul showed evidence for the resurrection. I went all lawyery, you remember that? We had witnesses, yeah. Evidence for the resurrection. Verse 12 for 20, Paul explains then the importance of the resurrection. He's putting all of his eggs in that basket and he's saying, if there's not a resurrection of Jesus, all of your faith is in vain. Puts all his eggs in that basket. It's all or nothing. That's 12 through 20. He's talking about resurrection. Verses 20 through 28, Paul shows some of the results of the resurrection, namely that Christ reigns victorious. That's a result of the resurrection. And in verse 29 through 34, that's our section here, Paul is going to present two arguments for the resurrection from experience. Did you notice a theme? Every single section is about the resurrection. What is Paul talking about? the resurrection. That's his thrust, that's his point, and he's coming at it from 10 different angles. But his whole point of this entire chapter is all about one word, resurrection. Do not miss that. Then we want to understand. Verse 29, that's the context. Now let's look at verse 29 again. Here's here's my paraphrase of verse 29, and I'm saying this is argument number one for the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, Why are they, I'm being careful with my language. If there's no resurrection, why are they baptizing the dead, for the dead? That's my argument. He's saying, look, if this life is all there is, and there's some people in Corinth who are getting baptized on behalf of their family members or friends who have already died. He's saying there is a logical inconsistency here. Your your thinking's broken. You claim there's no resurrection, and yet some of you in Corinth are getting baptized on behalf of the dead. Why are you even doing that? If this is all there is in life, Why would there be this practice that exists in this particular context in Corinth? Now, we gotta be so careful here. This, you could read. If you have trouble sleeping, I can help you. I've got some books for you to read. Um, here's, Here's why this, we have to be so careful. Some of you may be familiar, when you read this verse, you might be thinking of Mormonism right now. That might come to mind. And Mormons have a practice of what they call proxy baptism or vicarious baptism. This is literally being baptized on behalf of somebody else. 
What's perplexing though is that scholars don't see any evidence for this in the Bible other than this fleeting passing reference to it in verse 29. There's no other reference to it, no other reference to it. So what's going on here? Is this promoting a Mormon practice? Is that what Paul's doing in verse 29? Let's start when we don't understand a scripture with what we do know and what we can say Paul is not saying. When you read verse 29, here's, here's two things Paul's not doing. First, he never commands this act. There's no command in verse 29. He's making an argument that the resurrection exists. In verse 29, he says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on the behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? That's it. No command. Second, Paul never approves of the practice. He never approves of it. He doesn't endorse it at all. He's simply using it as an illustration to make his point. And if you wanna dive deeply here, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul does this same tactic, referring to idol feasts, and he uses that to make a point, and then later refutes it and says, no, 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 that's not a good practice. I was just using it as an illustration. He's trying to make a point, and he's arguing with people. Never commands it, never approves of it, and it is found nowhere else in scripture ever commanded. So why have Mormons built an entire church practice around it? Why? Well, I didn't want to guess. And I I had guesses, because I've heard, but I wanted to go straight to the source. So I go straight to their website, the Church of Latter-day Saints, and I read their doctrine, and here's where it is. Joseph Smith, on October 3rd, 1918, had a vision, and part of that vision was written down in a document they called the Doctrines and Covenants. You can find it in section 138. And in this vision, he saw a problem. What are we gonna do for those who have already died, but I'm bringing about this new revelation? Well, we can go backwards in time and baptize people today for those who have already died. And then, then, after this vision from Joseph Smith, which is received as revelation and which we deny, then they'll go to scripture and helicopter into one verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 29 pluck it out of context, and use it to build an entire practice around. Bad exegesis. Bad exegesis. Not something we endorse. So Ellie, good job. Not getting baptized on behalf of a family member this morning. (laughs) Ellie made a profession of faith herself. And we believe wholeheartedly it is by faith alone, by grace alone, we are saved. And so baptism, much like this ring, is a symbol. And taking this ring off, I'm still married. Still married. (laughs) Just a symbol. Doesn't make me married, symbolizes that I am married. Baptism doesn't save Ellie. It's faith in Christ's work on her behalf that saves. But baptism is the symbol that represents the reality that's happened, okay? There's baptism. Woo! Everybody stretch for a minute. That was verse 29. How about verse 29 for a classic red herring? 
especially as a preacher. Because remember, all of chapter 15 is about the resurrection. And I, I'm even hesitant to talk, to talk much more about baptism at all because again, that's not Paul's point. He's using an illustration of something that some people in Corinth were doing, not endorsing it. If you need more information, because I don't have time in this message, you're interested maybe in Mormonism or proxy baptism, you wanna learn more about what is this going on and, and how as a Christian would I even address or approach or refute such uh, heresy and wrong doctrine. I've got a great resource for you I'll point you to. It's, the website is str.org, it's Stand for Reason. It's a great resource. They've got some articles on there that are helpful and uh, I haven't read every article, but I do know this author, Greg Kukul. We've endorsed his book before, trust it. That was a great article, it was helpful if you want some more information. All right, I did it, verse 29. Verse 29, can we get to 30? Everybody said amen. Argument one, if there's no resurrection, why are some people in Corinth, them, why are those people doing this strange practice? Their logic is inconsistent and it presupposes there must be a resurrection. Argument number two, if there's no resurrection, why are we, I use that word very Specifically, argument number two, if there's no resurrection, why are we willing to face death daily? Notice that's different than they. Paul now makes a clear shift. He says, some people are doing this strange thing, but here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing. And I'm willing to face death every day. And his argument goes, why would I put myself in harm's way? Why would Christians endanger themselves if there's no hope after death? He even quotes a familiar Greek proverb of that particular time. The people in Corinth would have gone, oh yeah, we've heard this phrase before. He says, look, if there's not a resurrection, shouldn't I just say about life, shouldn't this be my worldview? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Live it up. If this is really it, that's actually a really good worldview. You might as well live it up. Hedonism, live for pleasure, get the most trinkets you can. Work hard at it. Work hard so you can get another trinket that will get old and get boring. So you can work hard and get another trinket and get the most trinkets because this is it. Live it up. That's his argument. But Paul has a commanding and persuasive argument from his experience, his own life, to say, why would I risk my neck if there's no hope for the resurrection? And Paul risked his neck, didn't he? And if you've read Acts or any of the New Testament, you can get familiar with all that Paul went through. It's miserable. Why would someone choose regularly to be imprisoned. Why, one of my favorite stories is Paul gets stoned and the people take his limp, unconscious body out of the city, set it on a pile of rocks. He comes to, and you know where Paul goes? I'd, I'd go to Orthopedic Center of the Rockies. <laughs> Paul gets up and he walks back into the city. That's nuts. 
Why would you do that? Unless, unless it's true. What if it's true? What if there really is a resurrection? What if there really is an untouchable, unshakable hope that makes this man, Paul, pursue a greater joy than what this life could offer? You see, because how you face death changes how you face life, doesn't it? It did for Paul. How did he face death? He knew he had an unshakable hope in a resurrection. Transformed the way he lived his life. He was willing to take risks for the gospel. That's his second argument. It's not just Paul that's done this, but many others. There's tons of illustrations of this. I'll give you one. German theologian and pastor Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a vocal opponent of the rise of Nazism. And remember, this is in a time when that's not easy. That's not easy to be vocal against something that was rising in Germany. In 1938, he had a unique opportunity to escape to the United States. But after just two weeks in New York, he decided to return to Germany. You know why? He said, quote, to share the trials of this time with my people. After he returned, he worked underground to help Jews escape to neutral Switzerland. And by 1943, he was arrested shortly after being engaged. He went to jail. And then, just a couple years later, on April 9th, 1945, he was hanged in the Flossenburg concentration camp. Just to give you some context, that was 28 days before Germany completely surrendered. 28 days. Coincidentally, it was eight days after this next man said this on Easter Sunday. C.S. Lewis, eight days earlier, preached on Easter Sunday and said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. Why would Bonhoeffer do that? If there's no resurrection, if the resurrection is false, Bonhoeffer's life was a foolish tragedy, unnecessarily cut short and cut off from the comfort and security of living in New York City. But what if it was true? What if the resurrection is reality? Then, oh then, it's a different story of Bonhoeffer. It's not a tragic foolishness. It is, it is a Christian who has an unwavering hope when he faces death. And it changed the way he faced life dramatically. It's the reason he could go back to Germany. It's the reason he could risk his neck to help others for the sake of the gospel. You see, facing death helps you face life, and especially the way you face death changes the way you face life. So for Bonhoeffer as a Christian, 
This life then can be a risk-taking, comfort-forsaking, gospel-proclaiming bravery that has a great reward in eternity. This is Paul's argument. What if the resurrection is true? Of course, Paul's life is a great example. Bonhoeffer, a modern example, but there's no greater example than Christ himself. Even Christ, Jesus, a real man who really lived, who got splinters, learning from his dad to become a carpenter at at a young age, risks everything, never shakes, never wavers from pursuing horrible pain, the cross. What would motivate someone to do something like that unless Jesus himself had an unwavering hope for the resurrection? You see, because how you face death changes how you face life. So how will you face death? How will you face death? Paul makes two arguments. Argument one, if some of these people in Corinth are doing this strange thing and baptizing on behalf of the dead, shouldn't there be a resurrection? It's inconsistent. Argument two, if there's no resurrection, why am I risking my neck? Shouldn't I just live it up? Why do I face death every day? And then he moves to an exhortation as he closes. Two arguments and now an exhortation. This is my paraphrase. Paul says in verse 33, what's the so what of all this arguing for the resurrection? Paul says, wake up to reality in what you're thinking, how you're living, and who you're doing life with. Wake up to reality in what you're thinking, how you're living, and who you're doing life with. Let's see it in the text briefly. Verse 33, he says, do not be deceived. And then he quotes another familiar proverb to those people. Bad company ruins good morals. That word morals can be translated habits. It's how you act out life. Bad company ruins good morals. Verse 34, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor. The NIV says, come to your senses. Sniff the smelling salts. Come on, wake up to reality. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God and I say this to your shame. He, he says, some people don't even know about God and they're behaving a different way. But he says to their shame, but you do know about God. You have received the hope of the resurrection. Shame, shame. What, why? He is careful to use that word and he is using it because he knows he's put all his eggs in the basket of the resurrection. He is pleading in the strongest terms. He's saying, you have knowledge of God. You know better. Why would you live as if there's no resurrection? So he, here's his flow of thinking. Let's see three problems that interact with each other. First, there's bad company. He says bad company corrupts good morals. So you're, you're hanging out with people in Corinth 
who are having a poor influence on you and it's changing you. First, bad company. Second problem is bad morals. This is living, this is habits, this is your behavior. So you're hanging out around bad people, you're doing some bad practices and living and that's all rooted in your three bad thinking. Bad thinking. Not thinking well here. You see, because how you face death changes how you face life. How you think about eternity and whether or not there's a resurrection changes how your behavior is today, doesn't it? And that's his whole argument. He's saying these two are inextricably linked. What you believe changes how you behave. And so what's the solution? What's the antidote that he says? If I take those three and flip them and invert them, here's what you could do. First, have right beliefs. Get clear, have sober thinking, especially about the resurrection. Two, have right behavior. Your behavior follows your belief. And three, get it reinforced by right company. Okay, so that's very heady, that's theological. Let me lower the cookies all the way down and ask it straight up. Three questions. How would you evaluate Paul's exhortation in your life? Let's start with your head. One, do you believe there is a resurrection? Let me make it personal. Do you believe you will be resurrected? Do I believe I might dunk again one day? Probably not in this life. But do I believe in a resurrection? That's your mind. Two, does your life reflect that belief? That's harder. Because you might be shaking your head at number one, but number two, slow down. Does your life really reflect that you, you unwaveringly believe this isn't it? There's a resurrection coming. There's a greater hope. There's greater joy in Christ. Does your life reflect that belief? And then three, you really want to shore that up. How does your closest community answer number one and number two? The people you do life with. You could ask them at lunch today. How would you answer number one and two? Because Paul's saying bad company corrupts good morals. So the inverse is get around people that are good company. Are you around people that are willing to take risks for the gospel? Their life reflects, they're, they're willing to stick their neck out at work and do something because it's morally right that might get them fired. That's a risk-taking, Bible-believing, resurrection-hoping Christian. Do life with them. Do you, are you in community with people who are willing to risk their reputation with their neighbors and share the hope that they have of Christ, Christ even if it means they'll be ostracized? That's a risk-taking, resurrection-believing Christian. That's a person worth doing life with. Do you believe in the resurrection? Does your life reflect that belief and are you doing life with people who answer number one and two the same way? How will you face death? 
how will you face death? As I close, I want to invite the, uh, the worship team to come up for a unique way for us to close our service. And I want to ask, how will you face death? Thank you. If you uh, went to Ukraine and met with a creepy therapist and you spent two hours in a grave and you faced death, would it change the way you face life? Uh, I want to invite us to consider how your life might be transformed if we believe to the core of our souls, as Paul argues for all of chapter 15, there really is a resurrection and there really is a hope. So in just a moment, I wanna pray for us and then we're gonna respond in song and also weave into this song moments of prayer uh, for us to be praying this very theme from this song. So let's pray. Father, we ask for your help. Uh, we, in the room, Lord, there may be skeptics here today that are still joining us from Easter that are considering, is this thing really true? Could this resurrection really transform my life? And I pray that you would open your word and invite them to explore and consider and trust you as they seek answers for that question. And for those of us, Lord, that, that claim this belief, they wanna follow Jesus, Lord, would you help our lives align with the belief that we really do have this great, unshakable hope in the resurrection. We trust you to do this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.